with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 27, 2012. This is a Thursday, and this is episode 986 of the Survival Podcast. I have Jeffrey Yago uh, hanging on the line, bringing him on in just a moment. He's from DTI Solar, and he's going to talk to us today about solar as it uh, pertains to preppers, how generators and battery backups fit in with that. We'll have him on in just a bit. Uh, before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Uh, it goes without saying, you have a gun, you don't have any ammo, you have a very expensive club or possibly a good barter item if you want to barter with somebody who might turn around and shoot you with it. I mean, I'm just saying, right? But if you have a gun and ammo, then you have a tool that can be used to defend yourself or put food on the table. And that means you need lots of ammo because the third component of that is training. And you need lots of ammo so you can train so that when you need to use the weapon, you are able to use it effectively. Those three go together. I can tell you we have great places to get training from. I can tell you there's plenty of great places to get uh, guns from. But I'll tell you the best place to get your ammo, if you want lots of it at an affordable price with fast shipping, is BulkAmmo.com. Remember, they are a supporter of the Member Support Brigade and do offer discounts on larger purchases. So check out the benefits section of your Member Support Brigade area if you're a member before you order from Bulk Ammo to get your discount. Next up today, MERSRadio.com, located at MERS-radio.com. That's Rob Belleville there. You know, he has a small assortment of equipment, and that means he knows it cold and anything you could possibly uh, want to know about it, whether it'll work for you or not. If you get in touch with him, he's going to help you out. MERS is a great way to combine secondary communications and security into a single unit. You've heard me talk about it for years, and I want to say something special right now about Rob and MERSradio.com. Uh, due to some changes that we've made in our uh, sponsorship program as far as the rates go by raising them a bit, Rob feels he can no longer sponsor the show. And I understand that, and there's no bad blood, and I still endorse him and his products very highly. And I'd like to take a special moment right now to thank uh, uh, Rob for sponsoring the show for almost three years. And I'd like to make sure that everybody knows that at the end of the month when uh, Rob's position officially uh, goes away, and his banner goes off the site, it is not in any way any type of statement at all that I don't think he and his products are outstanding. He's a good friend of the show. Uh, it's a business decision made on both ends that we understand uh, on both ends. He will continue to be offering a 5% discount to member support brigade members. So uh, he will still officially be on the team, so to speak, that way. Um, I try to keep my rates as low as possible. They're really not that high. Uh, I have a huge waiting list, but there is you know, a certain business component to this where I do have to say, okay, there's at least a certain amount of value here and have to charge fairly. And because Rob is a part-time guy and uh, deals with a small select set of equipment, it just the pricing's just kind of out of his realm. Uh, I do know some uh, fellow bloggers out there are picking him up, uh, with, you know, that don't have anywhere near the traffic, but they can uh, help him get the word out. And uh, taking him on as a sponsor, a few places I heard from one today, and I think that's awesome. And again, Rob, uh, thank you so much uh, for your support of the show. And I will continue to support you and recommend you and recommend your product set 
uh, for a long time to come sponsored or not. I just wanted to say that I think when someone's been with you that long and you part company in a good way, uh, you owe it to them to thank them for what they've done up till now. It's kind of like having an employee move on where no one really did anything you know, negative. It's just time for them to go somewhere else, and they feel that way, and you feel that way, and you really wish they could stay, but they can't. Um, and I'd say it's almost more like losing a family member because that's how close I get to some of our sponsors. So again, Rob, thank you. Uh, next up today, you can check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper coins. Remember, you get discounts on uh, the rolls there. There's rolls of 20 coins. Uh, the discount code is in the member support brigade if you are an MSB member. Um, also want to remind you one more time, I guess two more times because I'll probably do it tomorrow. Uh, there is an aquaponics class coming to Dallas with AOCS and Colorado Aquaponics. If you're near Dallas, Texas, uh, you really want to try to get to that. I'm sure there'll be lots of TSP people there, definitely some AOCS people there as well, and a great, great opportunity to learn from a real pro uh, in the business. Uh, next up, real quick reminder, I think I said this yesterday on the air, and I know I announced it on the blog, but Old Grouch now gives you guys a 10% uh, discount on uh, the MSB. Uh, Old Grouch Military Surplus, one of the few true military surplus uh, companies still in business out there today dealing with true surplus uh, military gear, not cheap uh, Chicom knockoffs. Uh, I wanted to remind you guys about that as well because it's a big deal to have him step up and do that. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You've been hearing me say all these great discounts. There's a ton more of them, and uh, you'd be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps or first responders uh, like paramedics, please email me before you join with service discount in the subject line, and I'll send you a discount code uh, to thank you for your service. All right, with that, I'm ready to introduce our special guest today. Again, his name is Jeffrey Iago. Uh, Jeff is a licensed professional engineer, a certified energy manager by the National Association Association of Energy Engineers, and a certified solar installer by the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners. He's been designing and installing solar systems for all types uh, since 1974. His most recent project was a pretty big one, 110,000-watt uh, grid tie system for the University of Virginia. Uh, Jeff currently writes for Backwoods Home Magazine, which is actually, that's how I met him at uh, one of the Self-Reliance Expos. He was there with the Backwoods Home folks. He's also written for Home Power Magazine, Mother Earth News, Solar Engineering Magazine, Energy Users News, and Engineered Systems Magazine. He lives with his wife in Virginia. She's named Shannon. And they have a solar home they built in 1994. We'll uh, get them to tell us a little bit about that at some point today. And with that, uh, hey, Jeff, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Hey, we've got you on to talk about solar today, and uh, I'm really excited about that because I have one particular guest who's really switched on with energy, but he's pretty much anti-photovoltaic. Uh, he thinks it's an energy loss, and I don't fully agree with him on that because I've had him on so often, though I think people have think, uh, thought that I've kind of given solar a bad rap, so maybe you can help me out with uh, telling the good stuff about solar today. Well, I guess the, the first question is when you talk about um, – his views, or it sounds like what he's looking at is, is in comparison to other energies. And uh, I won't argue that solar is still pretty expensive, even though we've had some pretty substantial price reductions in the past uh, year or so. Um, it's still pricey. Uh, but people have to remember that um, they're, like any energy source, each energy has a unique area that it works better than others. For example, um, petroleum works really well in cars as opposed to, uh, you know, some other fuel. And, and um, coal works really good to 
heat boilers as opposed to, um, you know, electricity. So um, when we talk about photovoltaics being um, maybe inappropriate due to cost, you have to remember there are some places where the cost is secondary. For example, there's many, many applications for solar where there is no alternative. For example, uh, remote sites, uh, there's all kinds of uh, microwave towers on mountains and telephone repeaters and and buoys out in the ocean, and, and uh, you'll see a lot of street signs and traffic counters and emergency cell phones. There's many places right now where they found that solar is much more cost-effective than, say, running underground wires or, or other sources. And we've got, I think, a, a, a skewed view of the electrical grid because we say cost-effective. And a lot of that, in my opinion, is based on cables that were put in the ground and strung across poles, you know, 50 years ago or more. And we put that in with a labor cost of 50 years ago, and we haven't done as much as we should to maintain it. And if we had to put in an electrical grid today to match what's already there, I don't know that it would be such a cut-and-dry, one is more cost-effective than the other analysis. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, this is a, an area that I'm really concerned with is the, the current state of the infrastructure in this country. Um, there's 164,000 miles of high-voltage power lines in the United States today. Um, of that total length of, of line, over 70% of it was installed back in the 1960s and 70s. Um, most of those large transformers um, that it takes to to uh, step up and step down these high-voltage power line uh, systems, um, those are also 30, 40, 50 years old, and they're no longer manufactured in the United States. Uh, there's only one or two companies in the world now. I think Germany is one of the places where these large transformers are even made. And in most cases, it's a one- to two-year uh, delivery on order. So my concern is that we have this massive amount of utility lines, and up to today, we have enjoyed the fact that it's still working okay. And, and even though the maintenance has gone down, we're still kind of merrily floating along, but but as this thing continues to age, we're not doing the level of maintenance and repair and replacement that we should be doing, and uh, we're basing our reliability on on historical past, and that is no longer a good way to judge the the future uh, availability of, of electrical power. I'm concerned that power outages are not only going to become more common in the future. But as we've already found out, you know, small storms that, um, you know, can wreak havoc uh, and, and take down a utility grid in an entire state for a week or more, which just happened here in Virginia a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely. Um, the other side of that, I guess, is that we're starting to see some failures in things that shouldn't cause failures. There was uh, this summer, there were six million people in the Southern California area uh, that ended up without power, and it came out to be some guy out in, I think it was actually Nevada or New Mexico, had changed out a part, and he didn't even do anything wrong, and somehow it created a cascade that took 48 hours to fix, and he didn't even do it wrong. He just did it, and it, it created some kind of brain fart in the system and shut down uh, a sector that was two states away. 
And, and, and to me, that just tells us there's vulnerabilities and weaknesses there. Well, it is, and, and if you go back a few years, those people listening who remember the, the deregulation of the phone company really didn't turn out to be as grand as a lot of people thought it was going to be. It certainly didn't necessarily lead to to a cheaper cheaper rates, although it might have made for more availability of, of products. Uh, but when they deregulated the electric uh, utilities, I think it was back in the early 90s, somewhere in that range, late 80s, um, they also were thinking that this was going to allow people to choose uh, where they get their electrical supply, and, and you can do that. But but what happened with the deregulation of the electric company is they divided it up into three components. Originally, somebody would build a power plant simply because it was in an area uh, where it was needed geographically. Uh, maybe a local city nearby was expanding, and they decided to put in a power plant and probably near the water, near a river, a source of cooling water, maybe near a coal mine, a source of fuel. And um, so the, the, the people building the plant also built the power lines and also built the infrastructure in the city and the meters and the poles and the meter readers and the guys running around the little repair trucks with the cranes on them. And it was all one company. And that's the way our utility grid developed. It was not under some kind of national master plan. So each of these separate utilities developed on their own and people think it's all interconnected, that there's all these wires connect to everybody, but that's not really true. There's many sections of the country are not connected to other sections. So um, where you have excess capacity in one part of the country, you may, you may need it in another part of the country, but the lines don't connect between the two. So anyway, when they deregulated the industry, they divided it up into three components. The, the production location or the plants, the coal plants, the nuclear plants, the, the gasification plants, those became a separate uh, profit center, separate company. Um, then the local utility became a separate uh, company. This could be a co-op or um, you know something along those lines, and that would be the people who actually service your home's electrical system, install a new meter base if you have a build a new home. Uh, string the wires around the town, and and that's also a profit center, and they do they do make money there. Well, that left the power lines between the two that, that go across country, and power lines are not a profit center. They lose no matter how much electricity you put in one end at the plant, you always always get less out the other end. So it's not something that's generating a profit. It's just an, a means to an end. And most of these lines are in very remote areas. They're very hard to get to, sometimes only by helicopter. Um, and these are the lines that are getting old and are not getting maintained because the uh, the emphasis is at the power producer and at the end user. So I'm just concerned that um, we're going to see far more problems with the grid than we've had in the past, and and people are not really realizing that, and they're going to be caught off guard. I want to stick mostly to solar here and get deeper into the meat of it, but as a transitional point from kind of discussing the problem moving over, let's talk real quick a little bit about generators. And I know that you are a fan of generators, but I also know from your, your writing uh, that you don't think a generator alone is enough. And, you know, we own a generator. We just had a power outage earlier last week. 
Uh, we're sure glad it was there, but I agree with you. Can you kind of cover why you think that you know preppers really need to be going beyond just like a generator is a piece of a system, not not the end all be all. Well, um, the uh, the problem with generator. I mean, I have a generator. I have a whole house generator. I have a portable generator. I have a little mini generator for my RV. So I mean, I'm not against owning a generator. The problem is. So many of the preppers I've met, and I've been to many, I've spoken at many conventions and prepper groups, and and they have a false sense of security. They, you know, they have they put all of this time and money and effort into making sure they have a, a nice pantry, which is fine, and they have you know stored water or, or backup well, something that makes sure they have water and. And they probably have a wood stove and a mountain of wood out back in the, under the shanty somewhere. But um, they they think that if they run out and buy a three or four hundred dollar generator, that that's that's all they're going to need. That they're they're fine. And my my problem is twofold. One, um, if you have a generator for an occasional power outage, um, that's one thing. But if you're looking for a generator for an extended outage such as a, a real, you know, something like a Katrina uh, down in New Orleans in, in back in 2005, we're, we're talking about weeks, if not a month, without electrical power. Uh, most of these um, generators that you're going to buy at, say, you know, Home Depot or uh, Lowe's or the Price Club, they're not made for that kind of service. They're made for... Uh, one or two power outages a year, and if you look in their warranty, it'll say that the the warranties of these generators that you typically buy locally clearly indicate that they'll void their warranty if you use them for backup power, off grid power, you know, extended power outages. They're not designed for that. They're just not designed to operate for thousands of hours uninterrupted. It's just They're not. not. I mean, it's, it's not a secret. It's uh, the manufacturers are not trying to hide anything. It's just for a certain price of money, um, they can build a generator with a certain life expectancy and operating time. And, and um, you know, typically um, the the generators that um, that are sold for um, uh, this type of application, I'm I'm just saying it's great to have one to fill in the hole of you know two or three days of power outage from storm. But if we have any major catastrophe, whether it's man-made or, or natural disaster, I mean, you know, as well as I do, the list of things that can go wrong today, you know, from forest fires to floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, whatever. Um, and, and then typically we're seeing outages lasting weeks now in certain areas. These generators just will not do that, and even if they could last that long in, in run time, you will clearly run out of fuel way before before that happens. I mean, um, you know, I've, I've worked in a lot of secret military bases and places all over the world, and and um, all of them have these gigantic generators. I mean, these things are as big as railroad cars, and um, and and to run those buildings. Uh, they take tractor-trailer loads of fuel every week. I mean, literally, it takes a fuel delivery like every three days to keep those running, and those are 
well-thought-out systems. So somebody talking about their home, um, again, for the prepper movement especially, I'm saying you guys got to think a little bit more about emergency power, and that's where I think solar fits in because you do not need fuel. Um, again, yes, I'm not saying it's cheaper than than buying a generator. I'm saying it may be the only fuel source you will have if after one or two weeks of power outages. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think that the way that I've tried to explain it to people is like this. You know, you mentioned having a, a cupboard full of food, right? And I think that's very important that we do that. Uh, but that'll only take us so far. That's why most preppers also have a garden and plant things like fruit trees and, and berry bushes and things like that to produce food. The generator's kind of like your food storage. It's it's finite. It, it can't go on indefinitely. And that's why we tend to add some type of organic food production. When I say organic, I don't mean in the, the government way, USDA. I just mean in, in a, a natural, cultivated, sustainable way. We, we, ha- we realize intrinsically that we only have so much money, so much space to store food, so we have to be able to reproduce it in some other way. And with energy, even if you had like a bulletproof generator designed to run a long time, and a lot of fuel, sooner or later that fuel still r- reaches capacity and runs out. And unless you've got a refinery and an oil well in your backyard, you ain't making more. So you've got to have a way to create versus use. So instead of having a battery, you've got to have a, you know, a true generation system. Exactly. And, and that's why I don't get into the argument about the cost of solar or the payback. My clients never ask me, What's the payback if we buy a solar system? Now, I know some people do, yep. but my feeling is if that's the way you're shopping for solar, you're probably going to find out it's not worth the investment. I mean, I don't care what kind of deal you get or what kind of tax credits you get. Solar systems typically are still going to be more expensive than the local utility grid, unless maybe you live in Honolulu or, or you know, Nome, Alaska. So. Other than these extreme areas of very high cost, uh, solar is always going to be the most expensive fuel. But, again, that's not why we're using it. We're using it for those applications where other sources of fuel are either not available or we're concerned about uh, availability of fuel in emergency situations. Yeah, and to be fair to the guest I mentioned, Steve Harris, uh, pretty much most of the audience would know who I was talking about. One thing he's always said about solar, he says, it's the most expensive energy you can get except for it's not as expensive as no energy, right? So uh, with this off-grid situation, uh, I think that there's a huge case for it. And then as a redundancy, I think there's a huge case for it. One of the bigger concerns, though, that, you know, when you look at doing this, especially where I live in the South, and we have, you know, routinely go through month after month of, you know, 100 degree plus days, is there certain large draw items that financially you just can't get your head around having enough solar power to run? You're not going to be able to set your thermostat at 75 degrees and run an HVAC system uh, for the average person. The, the, the capability of doing that off solar is not possible. But, how much can we do with solar with a reasonable budget, say twenty, thirty thousand dollars? Well, before, before we jump into that, let's one little point I'd like to make from your previous comment is um, you're talking about um, you know solar costs and things. Um, I like to tell people, you know, why would you buy a fire extinguisher? You know, what's the payback of a fire extinguisher? You know, it's. A, <laughs> 
if you never use it, it's a total waste of money. But yet we buy them all the time to have them for emergencies, and that's that's the way I view the solar stuff that we deal with. Uh, also, talking about the cost of solar versus the cost of regular electricity, how many thousands of road signs and, and things that measure the level of creeks? I mean, there's all kinds of places in our states where the device uses a small amount of electricity, but up until recently, the traditional approach would be to have the power company install power line, install a meter base uh, to service some cell phone or a meter or something, and the the monthly bill is usually uh, 20 cents worth of electricity and $20 to have the meter base there. So we're starting to replace a lot of of applications of conventional electricity now with solar simply because it's more cost effective. So there's still a lot of conventional places that um, solar was certainly uh, is justified. I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, we've seen a proliferation of things like solar landscaping lights. Um, and if you think about digging up a yard, I mean, this is a very, very small scale thing, but versus digging up a yard, plugging it in, maintaining the electrical lines through your own property, being able to stick 20 of those things out in your yard and just have them work is, is a perfect example of what you're saying. Well, exactly. I mean, we have a lot of clients, for example, on, you know, state-owned industrial parks and, you know, and university campuses where typically you have these signs out at the entrance to a campus or a uh, a housing development or something that might be a half a mile away from all of the the buildings or the the houses, and you want to just light a nice entrance sign there at night. Well, what would it cost to trench a half a mile of wire to run one or two little lights? So again, there's there's plenty of applications that we can we can show where solar is cost effective and not get in the argument of this being the most expensive. Yeah, electricity. I completely agree. And many, many years ago, and I mean many years ago, I used to run outside plant construction crews and put underground infrastructure in. And back then, we were charging five to seven dollars a foot to lay, you know, fairly small infrastructure. So you can add that up and do the math real quick, and you're doing it with 1993 numbers, uh, not 2012 numbers, which I'm sure that those guys are not charging less today than than we were back then. So I completely agree with that. Well, um, as I said, um, we are encouraging people, especially the prepper movement, to realize that, yes, by all means have a generator, but don't count on it lasting over a week. Um, and the people that buy these whole house generators, I really have a problem with those because uh, how are they wired? They are always wired to start as soon as the power goes out. Well, Typically, you know, that may be when you're not home and there's nothing running in the house right now but a clock. And a large generator consumes a fair amount of, of fuel, whether it's fully loaded or not loaded. I mean, the, the curve is not linear. It's um, it's a much more pronounced usage at the front end than at the back end. So as soon as a generator starts up, when the power goes out, you may not actually need it, but yet all of these um, whole house generators that are being sold, that's the way they're wired. And the systems that we're involved with where you're using a battery backup system and a generator, the backup system that's running off the batteries 
does not start the generator when the power goes out. So the power goes out and you're immediately switched over to the batteries. And the batteries could be charged by solar, but they don't have to be. They could be charged by the grid, but they don't have to be, or by a hydro system or a wind turbine. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can charge a battery bank. But the, the advantage of that is when the power goes out, nothing changes except it switches the loads over to the battery backup system. And only when the battery gets low does the generator start. And when a generator does finally start, the system will load it up to where it's running pretty much full out. And the goal is to recharge the batteries as fast as possible and then shut off. Yeah, so, I mean, that makes perfect sense. That's, that is the way that these things should be done, no doubt. And that's pretty much when we're talking about um, really well-done generator systems, that's the way we do it. But there's another part of the puzzle in the solar that is, is more, I guess, closer to the preppers than, than the whole house system. And that is, as I said before, think about those things that you just cannot live without and at least provide some means of solar powering those. Um, I just did an article for Home Power Magazine in June, July issue. Uh, people can read online or still maybe get at the bookstore. Um, but I describe uh, probably a hundred different brands and types of uh, portable solar systems. These are systems from the small ones that fold up and fit in your glove box to uh, systems on wheels that you can roll around. Um, or move from place to place, for example, if you if you have to bug out, you can take them with you. But at least these smaller solar packages can keep a um, keep your cell phones charged up, keep some emergency lighting charged up, and keep you know keep um, uh, radios charged up. Um, you know, what are you going to do with that bag full of batteries once they run down? Um, if the grid is still out. Um, even even uh, people with the spare batteries, sooner or later, the, it's going to end. There has to be another way to recharge batteries and to power devices that you need without relying on the grid. And that's where uh, I'm telling the prepper movement to start thinking at least uh, at a minimum of some of the portable solar uh, devices that are now available and uh and and more extreme would be um, you know a solar some type of solar backup system not to power their house not to run their air conditioner but to run those very basic needs for example uh, a refrigerator a freezer microwave oven you know yeah these these are big things here and uh, like one of the things in your notes here that you just said one of them that really caught my eye personal to me is a refrigerator chest freezer that type of thing because you have a lot of food at stake there. And the other thing, because it's a high-draw implement, and for people like me that live, you know, I'm not off-grid, but I'm not really on-grid. I'm kind of in that, that middle zone where you get some utilities, not all, wells. And a well pump is a high-draw uh, thing, especially when you have a deep well, like 300 feet like I do. So what type of, of a system do we need size-wise to be able to handle things like that? And, and what kind of a budget is reasonable to be able to do it? Because I've seen some of these portable devices, and some look pretty good, and some of them seem like overpriced 
junk to me. Um, you look at the specs and you realize, well, this will run a refrigerator for like 45 minutes. That's been my big argument with the, um, these little portable solar carts. You know, you see yeah. them there. About the size the of solar powered generator that will run your house when the right. you, know, you look at the specs and you go, yeah, it'll run freaking a light bulb for a couple of days, but it ain't going to run, you know, a TV in the refrigerator for for four or five days. And the specs don't say it will, but the marketing says it will. Well, here's a here's a simple way for for people to to think about this. Everybody knows what a golf cart battery is, or most people has a vague idea about the size of a golf cart battery. They weigh about 65 pounds. They're heavy. Uh, they're a little bit bigger physically than a car battery, and they're 6 volts instead of 12 volts. That battery that weighs 60-some pounds will store about a kilowatt hour of useful energy. And a kilowatt hour is simply you could run a 100-watt light bulb for 10 hours or, um, you know, just the math is going to, you know, whatever adds up to um, uh, one kilowatt, 1,000 watt hours. That would be a, a microwave oven is about, you know, 1,300 watts. So it would run a microwave oven for, you know, like maybe half an hour. Uh, so um, the point is when you look at these little carts and they talk about running refrigerators and freezers and all these other things, just envision the weight and size of a battery that it takes to store one kilowatt hour of energy. So to answer your question, when we start talking about powering a refrigerator or a freezer for two or three days, you're talking about multiple batteries weighing hundreds of pounds. There's no other way to do that. But there's there's other, other solutions. Um, I mean... Again, when we do solar homes, our systems, you know, we're talking about a lot of money and we're talking about a lot of room. Even, a, you know, a lot of these projects have solar battery rooms. Um, but let's assume we're not going to go that far. Uh, there's still other ways to do it. And, um, and that was, you know, one of the things I'm, I've been trying to promote to the prepper movement is, uh, for example, with your well, instead of saying, I have this existing well pump, and it's a big horse, and it takes a, a lot of power to run it, um, so what kind of a solar system does it take to run it? I'm saying, well, maybe none. Um, if you're really concerned about uh, being off-grid or a power outage, leave that leave that pump alone to run off of the grid or off of a generator. And so the few times you need a lot of water usage, such as uh, maybe water a garden or wash a car or something, uh, or do laundry for a day, you start up the generator and just run the, the well pump on the generator only. If you're looking for long-term water usage and you don't need a, a huge volume of water. Uh, a lot of times what we do is put a second pump in the well, and it'll be a solar pump, something smaller that doesn't take $10,000 worth of solar modules to run it. It has less flow, but it basically sits there and pumps a few gallons of water a minute all day long. 
so in that application, you're not buying, you know, five thousand dollar inverters and and a, and a whole closet full of batteries. You simply uh, find another way to solve the solution or solve the problem. I think we could add to that another way to do that would be to set up water tanks that can use gravity for pressure. And we can fill those and have them in reserve and, and draw from them. And then if the grid goes down, we've got that there. And we can refill those, like you're saying, running the generator. That's kind of the approach as we're looking at our new place uh, that we're, we're thinking about taking is using a combination of, of redundancy created by a generator and, uh, you know, rain catchment with the ability to replenish those tanks if there's no rain using a generator off of the well. Absolutely. And the more things we can piece together, the 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 more redundancy resiliency we build into the system. Absolutely. We uh, we've helped a number of farmers here um, that have lakes and ponds and creeks down in low areas um, put in a small solar pump, and uh, a lot of times this pump is just hanging off of a float and mm. being held maybe a couple of feet off the bottom of the pond, um, and it's the wire comes over to on the ground and and there's a pole mounted solar array, a small one, and uh it pumps all day long up to a tank or a or a trough of for for animal drinking up on top of a hill somewhere. Um these are very simple systems to install, um pretty much as a kit. And I don't know if it's um in, in every area, but I know here in the East Coast, there's a number of, of, of inter, um, federal grant money available for farmers to, uh, if they'll fence off a creek to keep the animals out of the water, um, they'll help pay for most of the cost of a solar pump. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to avoid animals getting down into the water supply that's feeding other communities and things. So the farmer fences off his cattle from the creek, and um, in return, they'll give him enough money to buy a, a solar well to uh, to provide the drinking water, you know, further away from there. But I'll, I'll warn you, if, if the thing quits, that those animals are going to get in that creek no matter what kind of fence you put up. Sure, absolutely. Uh, that that makes sense. So if if you were dealing with a preference, so look, I got a, I got a limited budget, but I want to make sure that you know my ass isn't hanging in the wind, basically. Uh, I have, you know, $5,000 I can put into setting up some redundancies. What types of things like that with the water is relatively a low-cost thing to do, and that's a perfect example. Are there other things like that that just make sense to set up, um, you know, before you even start worrying about, you know, trying to power your house and be green, but just to make sure those redundancies are there? Well, um, for me, the easiest thing to take care of First, at low cost, is lighting. Um, you know, just a trip to the camping store, you can find a number of, of uh, most of the lanterns now, uh, they're getting away from the propane lanterns and, and they're getting away from the fluorescent lanterns and they're starting to come out with the LED lanterns now. And those things, those things will run forever on, on the batteries. So, um, I personally uh, own several of the uh, smaller little camping lights that have LED lights and on them and reflectors, and they can literally light up a room and run, you know, an entire day on just a tiny amount of electricity. So so the first thing I would spend some money on is some, not just flashlights, but some some lanterns that will light up a room. And um, 
these are not expensive. You're talking about maybe $30 a piece, and to have a few of those available and, and extra batteries or rechargeable batteries would be be my first investment. Um, so we'll put water aside for a minute because we've talked a little bit about that solutions on the water, and, and I'm going to assume that has been a solution there has been made. So um, for me, after that would be, as I said, um, uh, operating a, a small flat-screen television, uh, you know, laptop computer, um, and these um, can be done with fold-up solar um, modules. Um, you know, you can set them out in the sun for a day and, and, and get a whole evening's charge on a laptop computer or on a you know, flat-screen television. I think communication is very important and uh, staying in touch with what's going on out there if you're suddenly in a, in a, in a city or a state or, or a geographic area that's been cut off by the rest of the, the rest of the world and you don't know what's going on, um, I think obviously having a shortwave radio or AM radio is, is really a necessity. Um, you know, cell phones are going to quit working after a few days no matter what because all your cell phone towers, if there's a power outage, they only have a limited amount of of generator uh, fuel, and they also will quit. So, um, you know, having a couple of really high-quality, small, um, you know, of the commercial-grade walkie-talkies like contractors use, those things today are, are very inexpensive. They have incredible range. Um, but these are simple things that a person can do now um, that will help them, uh, you know, weather any kind of a storm. And, and then finally, the most important thing to me um, would be refrigeration of some sort. And rather than um, having some huge refrigerator in your house that you're asking me, well, how do we power that with solar, I would rather turn the question around and say, why don't we buy a freezer that is designed to run off of solar in the first place, mm. and we're not going to need $10,000 worth of solar to run it. That's what I recommend to people. Awesome, awesome. I got one to add. If you have any kind of uh, a backup power that has an AC plug on it, whether it's battery backup or solar or whatever, on the lighting, one of the most awesome things we found for lighting when we're dealing with a power outage is the LED white Christmas lights. Uh, 100 of those on a string pulls about 3 watts. I mean, it'll run for days on a car battery. And if you string one up around the, the ceiling line of like a living room, it will light the place up for you. And uh, they're cheap. They work. They generate almost no heat. Um, so we, we've used those quite a bit during power outages. And we got the idea because we strung them up on the pergola around our deck just because they looked pretty. You know, and the first night I went out there, and it was dark, and I flipped a switch, and it came on. I was like, oh, my God, I can see out here better than, you know, running 20 lanterns. And uh, it, they're just – it's amazing what they do for you from a lighting perspective. Yes, uh, the main thing is to make sure they're appropriate to run off of a battery. Um, you know, we've had a, a few applications of LED lights that, that were supposed to be – you know, an LED is supposed to run off a DC source, but – uh, some of the LED lights are designed to use what's called a constant current AC uh, voltage source, and we've had a number of applications where people had um, asked us to solar power some LED sign lighting, and um, it was a disaster because these LED light strings that they had, they were commercial graded, 
um, they come with a little power supply for them, mm. but it's impossible to to remove the power eliminate the power supply. It just it just would not work, and and we in times had to rip them out and and put in LED lights that were specifically designed to work with batteries. So that's the only thing I would caution folks to to make sure that um, you know if they are looking uh, for some LED lighting. Um, where I like to go is the RV and boating supply stores. There's a, just a ton of of LED lights you can get now for RVs and boats that run that absolutely positively run off of a 12 volt battery. Because they're designed to, and that's that's what I've heard to. you say many times is instead of trying to make what's not designed work with the alternative energy system, and then spending buku bucks on the alternative energy source, let's start out with getting the right thing to power that's designed for the efficiency in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's two places that I shop regularly that that personally I shop that are about as low cost as you can get and have amazing amount of things for for the prepper as far as the prepper uh, you know power emergency lighting things. That would be the the camping sporty goods section of Walmart, and that would be the camping section of somewhere like Dick's Sporting Goods or. Or some of these places, and then, as I said, the boating, RV and boating supply stores. I, I mean, I hit these stores regularly. I'm amazed that the products that are coming out. That um, you know, I I have an RV and a, and a camper both, and and last year I ripped out all the lighting, and uh, even though it was really efficient DC lights, I replaced them all with the newer um, LED conversions. So, I mean, those. Are bright. They use very little electricity. They last forever, and all of these are perfect applications for the, um, you know, the, the person who's looking to do something uh, off grid for emergencies. Let me ask you one thing real quick. We're going to step back for just a second. So I, I just realized if I don't ask you this, I'm going to get a hundred people asking me. Where do you find a freezer that's designed to run off solar? Uh, well. <laughs> Besides the fact that we sell them ourselves, um, okay. uh, um, there are um, there are a number of, um, of freezers um, that are propane powered, which um, is an old design. It's been around forever, but uh, they're they're making newer versions of these um, that are pretty efficient and reasonably safe. Um, you know, they've taken the old concept and 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 converted them over. Um, the refrigerators that are designed to run off of DC and, and propane for campers and things probably are not what somebody's going to want. They're they're not made to run forever. They're made for the weekend trip on an RV and and then turn them off for a while. So I'm not sure I would recommend that type. But um, there's several manufacturers of of um, DC refrigerators and DC freezers. Um, typically, they're somewhere in the three cubic foot to eight cubic foot range. They're not gigantic, but again, if you had a couple big blocks of ice or some frozen hams and turkeys in there, uh, two weeks after the power was out, you're going to be pretty popular, even if it's not large. And these um, are available in a 12 and 24 volt DC version. Um, so. What we're doing is we're we're taking um, the 12 and 24 volt um, refrigerators and freezers, 
um, and it's one or the other. Um, it's the same unit, but it's it's it either is a freezer or it is a refrigerator. You have to uh, you change the thermostat. It doesn't have two separate compartments like a stand-up residential refrigerator gotcha. freezer. One or so, the other. But I I recommend the freezer because uh, to me the most important thing is things like ice and and frozen meat, and um, you can always if you can freeze a bunch of ice every day. You can always move that ice into a defunct refrigerator uh, that's the, during a power outage and use the refrigerator as an ice chest and functions at a, a, to keep things cool but not frozen. Um, but we take these and, and uh, make them into a kit that includes the, um, the solar panel and the built-in charge controller and the battery and the fuse, and it's all as a package. And you're you're looking at probably somewhere in the $2,500 range, give or take a few dollars, depending on the size. There's, there's, they come in three different sizes. Um, but that's what, what we're doing now. We find that that, that is a, a much better w- w- way to go. You're talking about a, a, a refrigerator that's designed from the ground up to be incredibly efficient. I mean, the walls are about three inches thick of insulation. The doors fit airtight. Um, they use very little solar power to run them. And the nice thing about it is, if you're not interested in the solar, you can leave the solar out and just have them hooked up to the battery and then use a trickle charger to keep the battery charged up. So you essentially now have one freezer in your home. It doesn't, we're not replacing your existing refrigerator, but you now have one freezer in your home that if the power goes out, it's going to be running because it's always running off the battery, you know, all the time. I think that's brilliant, and I think, like, okay, you've got your small generator, and you've been off for a long time, and now your battery is close to drain, and, well, you just charge that battery up. Exactly, and so we have some, we we offer that um, unit with uh, the optional charger, that will quickly recharge the battery uh, from a generator. So I feel like that's a much better approach than, say, what size solar system do I have to go out and buy and install to power my existing refrigerator? Awesome, awesome. Now, you just said you guys sell it. So on the notes you sent me, I don't have a website for you. Is there a website where people can learn about that? Um, it's uh, dtisolar.com. D is in David, T is in Tom, I solar.com okay I'll make sure that's in the show notes for everybody on the blog uh, today as well so that you guys can can link right over there because that's something especially with our new home I would be highly interested in for my own personal use Um, now you actually your home that you live in is a solar home right I mean you're you're not just someone that does this for other people you you live the life that you're trying to build for other people yeah what we did was in um I bought this land in 1988. It's a, it's a lake community, so there's about 20-some other homes here, all conventional. Um, I spent several years building the house. I mean, we actually built it ourselves. We used very – about the only outside contractors was a, a kid that helped put the roofing on and another contractor who put the hardwood floors down. And, and about everything else we did ourselves, so it took – almost three years to build it. I did all the wiring and the plumbing myself and everything. But but it is uh, originally was totally 
solar powered. We do have utility grid here, uh, but the only problem in this part of the country, and we're in Virginia, uh, summers are not unbearably hot, but they're very, very humid. So we do require the utility grid for running our air conditioning system here. So uh, that's unfortunate, but um, our largest energy user is in the summertime for the um, for the air conditioning. The uh, the rest of it pretty much runs off the solar and the backup generator. Um, about three years ago, I built um, nearby across the driveway a uh, an office and garage with an upstairs apartment in it. And when we built that, we added um, we pretty much tripled the solar system size. So we basically have a system on the house and a system across the driveway on the um, on the garage. And then this past summer. I added a, uh, a four kilowatt ground mounted system, which is kind of back in the woods, so you can't really see it, but it, um, we're up to about a little, almost, uh, nine and a half kilowatts of solar power here. And then I have a room that was originally designed as a battery room, uh, where the batteries are stored. It seems to me like the people that have really done this all out, and have done it successfully, have done what you've done, and the, the house was designed with solar in mind. It's not, it's, it's easy, like it's, it's much more efficient to do that, just kind of like you're talking about with certain appliances, than trying to retrofit, you know, a slab built, conventional construction Home Depot home. Because, you, you know, I call them Home Depot homes because you walk into these, you know, production homes and you go, okay, the cabinet's Home Depot, the wa- fixture's Home Depot, okay, that's from Lowe's. You can literally pick them out. And those seem like a lot more, not that you can't do it, but a lot more difficult to really do it all out. Yeah, you're, um, um, you're just not going to be able to power uh, with a solar system. It's just not feasible to power heating and air conditioning equipment. Um, the, the things that use a tremendous amount of energy that most people don't realize is, is a central air handling unit. So, so let's, they say, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this uh, outdoor wood stove, and I'm going to pipe that heat into a coil in the air handling unit. Well, that, that's great. But if the power is out, um, even though it would take a small amount of electricity to run the pump and controls of that outdoor wood stove, um, the problem is it takes a huge amount of power to run that fan. Yeah. And uh, that's where people don't realize is that um, unless you're going to run a generator 24 hours a day during a power outage, if you have a central air handling unit, you know, that's going to be a major problem. So I, I encourage people who are really wanting to be off-grid or close to off-grid, it's when they design the home, come up, if, if you need heat, if you're in the part of the country where you need heat, um, probably absolutely the best would be uh, an in-slab radiant heating um, that requires the lowest temperature of heat to uh, provide comfort. It's, it's much easier um, to run a, a pump off of a solar system, you know, a little one twentieth horsepower circling pump, than a, a you know half a horsepower air handling unit. So um, there's just things that make sense to do um, when you're designing from the first place. Same thing we talk about your well pump. Um, people always, every time, I, I, this is the biggest mistake people make with wells. The first thing they do when they go to 
with the local well driller is um, he's going to install the cheapest, smallest, easiest-to-handle expansion tank he can get, and that's going to be about the size of a basketball. And the problem with that is every time you flush the toilet or open the sink to get a drink of water, that bladder is going to deplete almost instantly, and the pump's going to come on. Mm. Well, if you're on a generator um, or on a solar system or an inverter, uh, every time that well pump comes on, that's a, just an incredible slam of of current on that equipment. I mean, it's it's maybe three times the inrush of of energy it takes to run a pump than if it's once it's started, it's just running. So, you know, the simplest thing to do is put a large expansion tank in something the size of a refrigerator. It takes up more room, but what happens is... Um, you know, you could flush the toilet 20 times and, and wash two loads of clothes before the pump comes on. And then once the pump does come on, it might run for 20 minutes and then shut off for the rest of the day. So there's so many simple things you can do when you're designing a home to make it, what I like to say, so energy efficient it's capable of being powered off of a solar system rather than the other way around. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things you've hit on, and, and I have too here, is that it is unreasonable to think we're going to run like an HVAC system. Uh, on the technology that exists today, anyway, some space trek thing in the future may be able to do it, but that's another design consideration. And I think that one of the things in the way of of, of more freedom is some of the, the building codes and restrictions. Um, you know, down here, where, you know, you talk about heat in Virginia, Trike, Texas. I mean, you know, geez. And but there are designs like you know earthship designs and things like that that are very hard to get clearance to build in a lot of places. But they sort of solve that problem too. Well, um, again, the, the codes are changing. For example, um, straw bale homes were almost impossible to get building permits on until the last couple of years. Um, you know, underground homes were difficult for many years to get building permits. I mean, I have worked on on underground homes, underground bomb shelters, straw bale homes, um, you know, gray water systems. All of these would have been impossible 10 years ago to get permits for. And, and in most jurisdictions now, it's possible to get the permits. Now, not maybe not everywhere, but, but uh, you know, unless you're the first one in your county, typically it, it's not impossible to, to build some of these more... Uh, uh, non-traditional forms of, of construction that are really efficient. It's good to hear that, that that's changing in some areas. I can tell you for a fact there's a lot of areas where it is still difficult. And then I think the other difficulty holding it back is, okay, if you can get the permit, you can build it. When you turn around and try to sell that home, exactly. getting financing, that is a killer um, we look at one home, not specifically in this this realm, but it was built on a geodesic dome form, and it was a gorgeous home. It was and it was unbelievably done well. I mean, top end kitchen, energy efficient throughout. It was a gorgeous home. And it was a steal of a price, and then we found out the reason it was a steal of a price is you can't. It's not that um, the the banks won't finance it. You can't get an appraiser to appraise it as an equivalent to a neighborhood property. So I think there's a lot of changes because that's what's going to make this more mainstream is when not only can you build it, but you can build it and you can sell it. So now we can start getting industry involved, and we're building neighborhoods this way. And until that happens, it's going to be people having to just break out and do it on their own. Well, it, that's true. I mean, it, it, things are changing. It is slow. 
Um, but again, I've, I'm amazed at some of the projects I've worked on here in Virginia, which is a pretty conservative state. Yeah. Um, um, but you would be amazed at some of the, I mean, I've, I've worked on underground bomb shelters here big enough to park a bus in. I mean, there's, there's people all over this country who are building, uh, shelters again. They're, they're, you know, they, they are thinking, um, survivability that I never saw 10 years ago. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's like Utah here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's great to hear because I think the more of us that can handle a disaster, the better we'll all do it in disaster. Um, on another note, kind of as we're wrapping up here, uh, are there anything, anything's out there like technology-wise, evolutions going on in the solar industry that you're particularly excited about? I've seen things recently where they're getting more efficiency on the silicon because they're able to use thinner pieces or they're able to grow it cheaper or, or what have you. Is there anything that you're seeing that like you really think is heading us toward a real leap forward in technology? Um. My, I, actually, I probably going the other way in, in, a, in a little bit of a, a change from what you said. Um, my concern right now um, for the industry has been the. Um, on the one hand, there's been this just uh, really significant drop in prices for solar modules. I mean, it's it's a, a module that uh, uh, two years ago would cost me a thousand dollars in cost. Uh, you can buy retail now for about two hundred dollars. So, so the 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 drop in the price of solar modules has been significant. Um, the downside is um, almost the entire all of that uh, is coming from China. Uh, you know, it's, it's produced overseas, and and um, I know from personal experience that some of those modules are. Incredibly good. I mean, I have I've had some here for testing, and and um, and I see them uh, side by side compared to the modules made domestically, and they look great. But but I'm also concerned about you know long term reliability. I mean, there's a lot of, um, of of factories that have just come up that uh, have only maybe a year or two of, of track record, and I'm not sure of of the, um, you know, if we're going to see some long-term failure, long-term issues with some failure rates going up um, as a result of some of this fast drop in price. In other words, if the, if the drop in price is strictly from mass production, uh, fine. That's reasonable to expect prices to lower as the mass production kicks in. But But if there's a drop in price due to, Cutting corners and the quality—that that's another issue. And, and I've seen—I've uh, also had modules come in from other countries that, uh, on the back vinyl, you know, use lumps under there, and it looks—I don't know if the guy was eating his lunch, and there's a <laughs> chunk of ham that fell down and <laughs> got sealed up, or you know, and the labels are stuck on there sideways and crooked. And I mean, it, maybe that module lasts for 25 years, but it just looks sloppy, and and so. My concern is, um, on the one hand, I, I really uh, I think the drop in the price of solar modules is going to help spur the market. But on the other hand, um, if you take all the profit out of it, you're going to get, you know, all, I'm seeing a lot of long-term installers going out of business because there's just now 
they no longer have the markup that uh, makes it worth their while. So uh, I'm, I'm worried about we're going to start getting a solar siding salesman coming out of the woodwork. I mean, mm. we're already seeing it now with the um, boiler room phone uh, sales of, of solar systems and, and kits and packages that are kind of one size fits all. And, and that's the thing that I disagree with. I think each each application is a little unique, and um, there's a perfect um, product for that particular person and his needs. But but the one size fits all, I'm, I do have some concerns with. So uh, as far as um, other issues, um, I, I guess um, you know some of the some of the new technologies coming out are making the modules more efficient, but they're also doing it with uh, with materials that are considered hazardous waste now. So on the one hand, yes, you are getting higher efficiencies. On the other hand, now you've got a module that you have to track the disposal of it like like you would a you know a hazardous waste material. So you know perhaps we will continue to ride the reduction in pricing from uh, mass production and and we'll just kind of see where that takes us yeah, and that's true of a lot of stuff that we buy the the the, the product at the end of life is a hazardous material and i think that's uh actually we're gonna have to wrap here now uh pretty quick but that's a totally different discussion but to me that's about manufacturers starting to design products with a design to be recycled to be reused versus to be discarded and uh, I think that if there's any place that that should be going on, it should be in renewable energy. It's the entire concept. Exactly. And, of course, um, people turn the nose up at the, the old lead-acid battery, but in, in the solar system, those are 100% recyclable. All of that sure. battery gets reprocessed into new batteries. So so at least in that regard, that's, um, they do a pretty good job with that. Absolutely. Well, hey, uh, Jeff, man, this has been a great interview. I think it's an entirely new look at solar for some people. I know it's it, half of it was what I expected, and half of it was really great new information, new ways of looking at things, and I appreciate you being with us here today on the show. And I'll give you a tickler as we close. Um, I'm in the process of finishing up a new book on EMP. There's an awful lot of uh, mis, uh, misinformation out there, and I've spent a couple of years... Uh, researching this and meeting with a number of scientists that were involved back in the uh, nuclear testing that went on in the 60s. So I've got a lot of information that I'm anxious to get out in, in print. So it's coming probably in the winter sometime. Great. Well, could we do this then? Let's get you in touch with Dorothy again. You just email her with kind of your time frame. And let's when that book is ready for release, let's get you back on to talk about that subject. I'd love to do that and maybe help you sell some books. That would be great. All right, folks, and with that, this has uh, been Jack, Jack Spirit, but stay along with Jeffrey Yargo, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 
Revolution.